Hi. Hey. Welcome to the Cordial Catholic. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, let me tell you a little bit about what it's all about. This is a podcast for non-Catholics, for new Catholics, and for Catholics who want to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little. I'm an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism. And this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, on a journey into the history of Christianity. I dug deeply into the history of the biblical canon, why some books were in and some books were out, into the history of my beliefs, why I believed certain things and other Christian denominations didn't. In my journey, I bumped into the ancient Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. It was then, as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about actual Catholic beliefs, that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholics was, more often than not, completely wrong. It was based in large part on misinformation and, I realized, misunderstandings. Simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I sit down with an influential Catholic thinker, talk about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. And this week's episode is a doozy. I'm joined by Keith Nestor and Matt Swain, two Catholic converts. Keith Nestor, a pastor for 22 years to talk about sola scriptura. This is the idea that all Christian beliefs, how to live our rule of faith, how to understand the Christian faith, comes from the Bible. The idea of Bible alone. We talk about how all three of us encountered this in our journeys and how understanding and unpacking and the challenges of Bible alone Christianity led us to look deeper into the Catholic faith. And how ultimately we found this position the Bible alone, to be untenable. We all became Catholic. Like many before us and many after us who meet this challenge and realize that there's something in here that just can't be overcome. It's a fascinating discussion. And I know lots of you love these long-form discussions, so hopefully you enjoy this episode. I think it's great. We cover, is Sola Scriptura actually found in the Bible? Is it workable? Is there a plain sense meaning to be found in the Bible that can be understood? How come there are so many different interpretations of the Bible? We tackle questions like these in great detail and highlight our own lived experiences where these questions and the answers we found led us. It's a great episode. And a reminder, feedback can be sent to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this interview. It's a fantastic one. And it's brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And one-time donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you so much to those who are supporting the show. You guys help this thing to keep running. Thanks so much. And now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Keith Nestor and Matt Swain on Sola Scriptura. Is this a broken system? Please listen and enjoy. 
Hi, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. This week, I'm joined by two fantastic guests for an amazing conversation, I think. Matt Swaim is a convert to the Catholic faith. He is one of the hosts of the Sunrise Morning Show, a popular guest on Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda, and the outreach manager at the Coming Home Network International. Matt, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. (laughs) Thanks for coming back. I'm also joined by Keith Nestor. Keith is also a convert to Catholicism after spending 22 years in ministry as a Protestant. He's a popular YouTube apologist and speaker, the author of The Convert's Guide to Roman Catholicism, Your First Year in the Church, and he's launched a new podcast, I guess because he's jealous of me, called Catholic Feedback with Keith Nestor. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And yes, I am jealous of you. (laughs) All right, guys, I don't know if this is a terrible idea (laughs) or the best idea I've ever had. I'm not sure. And I I guess we'll find out shortly. But I thought a discussion with the two of you on the problems of Sola Scriptura would just be fantastic. Both of you guys, along with myself, are converts to the Catholic faith. We all wrestled with this idea, with this, uh, this difficulty, this problem. And so I thought, let's get together and kind of unpack this and un- unpack our journeys and some of the things that, that drew us into the Catholic faith. So I want to get right down to it. And I think, Matt, I'll start with you. Can you kind of give us a snapshot, give the listener a snapshot of where, where you were when you first kind of began? Well, you know what? I guess we should do this first. Why don't we talk about what we mean when we say sola scriptura, and then maybe we could unpack. I want to know where you started off, Matt, when you kind of first encountered this problem. Yeah, so uh, to me, sola scriptura, it's like the whole question of like, what is water? You know, it's it's just the, 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 the brine that you're soaking in. Uh, I never knew anything but sola scriptura growing up. I grew up in a strong Christian family um, in parts of Southern Indiana, Central Ohio, um, into Central Kentucky. We went to various denominations, but they all kind of operated according to this principle. The idea, and, and you know, kind of a handy working definition is that the Bible alone, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is both formally and materially sufficient, <laughs> right, uh, to give you everything you need to be saved. Um, so this is the book, no matter what. We're all centered around this book. And that seems like really great when you're an eight-year-old kid and you get saved at vacation Bible school like I did. Um, And then you move on and you realize, well, your grandparents go to a Presbyterian church, but you go to a Nazarene church and your other grandparents go to a Methodist church. But that's because you guys all like different kinds of music. (laughs) And you think that's the reason. Um, And for most people, it doesn't go much farther than that. But then – There was a scandal in one of my uh, churches that I went to. The pastor, um, you know, had some infidelity and it caused me to think, do I believe all this because I'm being told it or do I believe it because it's being true? And that's when I really started digging into the meaning of scripture for its uh, for its own sake. And that's when I started coming to sort of different conclusions than other Christians I knew. I didn't realize. I mean, I'm like. I'm like your other boy, Nestor, over here, who had like a Methodist tradition. People always talk about Protestants believing once saved, always saved. I guarantee you I did not believe that, right? <laughs> I believe that, you know, if you said a cuss word as you fell off the cliff, then that was the end for you, man. Um, you know, that's that's the sin that would separate you from God forever. 
So getting to Bible college and actually my roommate uh, for for my first three years at Asbury College was a Calvinist. And we would have like all night debates in our room, you know, over this, you know, which scriptures were were what and and what have you. And for a number of years, I thought the problem was that my roommate just didn't get it when it came to scripture. And it wasn't until probably my senior year, maybe my first year out of college that I started to realize maybe the problem is with the doctrine of sola scriptura itself. Um, and that, that really was a big part of what started my trajectory to the Catholic church. And what's, and I know both of you can probably speak to this too. Um, maybe you even more so, um, Keith little, because you're in Canada that for so often there's this false dichotomy that either sola scriptura is true or Christianity itself is a lie. And so many of my friends who grew up in that sola scriptura environment saw a crack in the foundation of sola scriptura, and that was the end for them, for Christianity, period. So um, for me, in my case, rethinking it led me to the Catholic Church. Um, but that's a that's a very long explanation that we'll, I'm sure we'll get to over the course of the episode. <laughs> that's interesting, and I'm going to ask this question, too, a little later. But I, I'm, I'm curious because, for me, I didn't necessarily see this early on in my my Christian faith, but I can see looking back now where there were issues that I had to face that question kind of the underpinning of, of my belief system. I'm thinking of an in youth group and I was a very a very new Christian. You know, I became I be, I was saved, quote unquote, uh, in high school, around, you know, like around either fifteen or so. And pretty soon after that, this this debate on Calvinism erupted in my youth group. And at the time, I had a lot of questions about, well, how come we can't resolve this more easily? Why is it like this verse against this verse? What's going on here? You know, looking back now, I can see the, the roots of this problem that began even back then that I wouldn't really have to face down until much, much later, almost 15 years later, before I began asking questions that would lead me into the Catholic Church. But I see, the, you know, I see some seeds there, so I'm, I'm curious. I want to circle back around to, you know, maybe in hindsight, if yeah. you could, could see anything later on. I want to ask you though, Keith, how about you? I mean, you were, you were in active ministry. You, you, you had a lot at stake to ask questions like that. When did you first encounter some kind of chink in the armor of this sola scriptura kind of framework? That's a good question. I feel like, I feel like, you know, you guys mentioned your, your conversations with people who were Calvinists. And um, this is fresh in my mind because I just did a podcast episode on Calvinism. And Catholicism. <clears throat> and I was talking about in that episode when a good friend of mine who, you know, we, we, we were brothers in Christ together when he first became a Calvinist. And as we began to unpack that doctrine in those conversations, there was something about it that just seemed so off-putting to me. But yet he had all of this scripture that he would throw at me. And I went back and looked up my verses and I found, you know, of course, the other side verse. And, you know, you can argue all kinds of different positions from Scripture just on that issue. And I remember feeling like, is this the best we can do? Is there is there any way to break this tie? And it's almost Mm -hmm. like he who yells the loudest and has the most convincing argument wins. But at the same time, you have to wrestle with the fact that there are Scriptures that support either the Calvinist or the Armenian view uh, when it comes to predestination. 
And I remember when we would talk about it, he would say, okay, before we have this conversation, because we would like, you know, set these ground rules, he would say, here's rule number one. We are only going to appeal to scripture. And at the time I thought, well, okay, that sounds good. He said, rule number two is we have to recognize that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. You know, we can't both be right because that would be logically a contradiction. And I was like, okay. And then we, you know, we never figured it out. We never got anywhere because I find that people, I found that people could use the scripture to put forth their position regardless of what their position was. And, you know, that was troubling to me as a Protestant, of course. But, I mean, that started, I don't know, way, way back in my probably early 20s before I even heard of Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting, uh, you know, way of framing that too, because, of course, that begs the question: Well, why, why is the rule you can only appeal to Scripture? I mean, the the question then is: Well, where is that rule found in Scripture? Right. That, exactly, and that was the thing that, if if when I think about it now, I look at that and I go, well, we were making a pretty hefty presupposition right there, and we were in in essence we were cutting off. We're cutting off our own arguments at the legs because we're basically saying we're going to start with this with this presupposition that we can only use scripture, but we have no scriptural we have no scriptural uh, mandate to do that. Uh, if I can just jump in on that point, there's it's because in addition to to the idea of sola scriptura, there are a couple of sort of doctrines and assumptions that are kind of looped into that, and one of them is this idea of the perspicacity of scripture that scripture is so clear about these things that anybody whether they graduated high school or they have a doctor of divinity can look at those texts and know exactly what they mean um and, and so the assumption then can become and and this i've run into a hundred times and i know you guys have too is that well this is clear to me if the other person can't see it then either they're not thinking about it hard enough, or they're not praying about it sincerely enough. And that's where the divisions really splinter off into infinity. I mean, that's why Sola Scriptura becomes such a splintering doctrine. Because that's that's if it's if it's so clear that everybody can read it and know exactly what it means, but everybody reads it and comes to different conclusions, then you have to say, well, whatever seems right to me I must be the first person in 2020 years of Christianity who figured this out, you know, and think about the pride that that instills in you when you do that. Yeah. One question I have is why hasn't there been in, you know, the 500 plus years of the Reformation, why hasn't there been a unified Protestant position on that issue? Why, why, why is there, you know, not the, the Catholic position and then the Protestant position? Why, why haven't Protestants been able to solve that? If indeed, like you said, Matt, the scripture is so clear. And it's funny because when you hear different theologians talk about it, they say that all the time. They say, well, the scripture clearly teaches. The scripture clearly teaches. But if you say that to them, you know, the scripture clearly teaches, then all of a sudden if it, if it disagrees with their point of view, now it's it's not so clear. And, well, it says that, but it doesn't mean that. Yeah, I mean, how many times have we, have we run into that? We're like, <laughs> you come to the scriptures with the argument, and then if there's something that clearly refutes your argument, you're like, well, let's look at the Greek. <laughs> 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 or my favorite one is this. 
Well, we have, and, and this, this drives me ape crazy when we go, well, we have to look at that text in context. We have to look at the context. And I, I used to say to people all the time, we get in those conversations. Well, in what context does something mean the opposite of what it says? <laughs> that would be sarcasm. And unless you're telling me that a good chunk of the New Testament is sarcastic, then when you see, I think people float those words around to try to make them sound smart and to get and to like almost give themselves a disclaimer to be able to put forth their particular view and say that it's the biblical and only biblical way to understand the issue. Well, we have to look at that in context. It's not sola scriptura, though, when you're doing that. It's scriptura plus me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's scriptura plus whatever glasses I'm wearing when I look at the text. I mean, it, it becomes it becomes this strange relativistic thing, right? The thing that we as totally relativist as Christians, I mean, as an evangelical Christian, I rallied against, or I sorry, I railed against relativism, right? I, I knew all the philosophical arguments to defeat these relativistic arguments and whatnot. But then when it came to looking at my Bible, well, it was. You know, we, we'd said it was a plain sense meaning, but my plain sense is different than your plain sense. I mean, even within the same, you know, I, w- I was in a non-denominational church uh, before becoming Catholic. And even within that church, there were like a hundred different interpretations of the same scripture because we didn't have necessarily the same, you know, doctrinal statements and that kind of thing. There were all kinds of interpretations of the same piece of scripture in context. I mean, we, we could all argue for our context being the right context and our interpretation being the right interpretation, but it ended up being this weird relativistic interpretation of the Bible based on who we'd read, what theologians we'd read, who we preferred over who, and it wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, it was like you said, Matt, it was scripture plus me and whoever else I wanted to bring into my worldview. That's, but that's baked into the cake. That's totally baked into the cake. Because what does Luther say at the Diet of Worms, right? Here I stand, I can do no other. I'm standing on scripture. You know, this is this is what it is. And within two years, his own people, using the principle that Luther invoked at that council, are using it against Luther to splinter into further and further different sects, um, which are eventually fighting wars with one another. Um, but if you don't have an external rule of faith, then the rule of faith is going to be whatever biases you bring. So the the fact of the matter is, is you're going to have to have an external authority to help you understand the scriptures. The only question is, which external authority is legitimate? I mean, that's the real question. Yeah, you know, it comes it comes down to to who you trust. This was the question I asked when I was looking at, very early on in my journey, looking at uh, which church I thought had the kind of the corner on tradition. Now, I was looking at just very strictly in in like a Sunday morning worship service, right? So, I looked at, you know, me in my evangelical context with the band up there and, you know, 45 minutes of preaching and some some spontaneous prayer. It sounds uh, like Nestor's group. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was that and, and communion maybe once a month or, or less. And I compared that to what I understood at the time, which was a pretty anemic understanding, uh, but of the Catholic Mass and, and thought of all the reasons why Catholics did certain things and all the theology and the history behind that. Just comparing those two perspectives on a Sunday morning worship service, I was like, you know what? I, I'm better off trusting the Catholics because they've thought out what a worship service should look like. They've done this for thousands of years. It's been the same kind of thing. And we're just kind of making it up as we go in the evangelical church. Not even It wasn't even like 50 years old, the way that we worshiped in this particular context. So on 
a worship service, I, I realized, well, hey, the Catholic Church is more trustworthy of a guide in this context. Never mind, like what you're saying, for a rule of faith, like how we interpret, you know, understand our faith, the Catholic Church comes out as looking more trustworthy in that context too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And, you know, this this other question, it's funny, I was reading an article in Christianity Today, which is sort of like the evangelical periodical that, you know, it, it, that's that's the last one that's kind of left that's sort of mainstream Christian evangelical, you know, pu- publishing. But uh, there was this article about, you know, from a worship leader lamenting the fact that the Trinity isn't really mentioned in any modern worship songs. <laughs> like, it's all like, God, you are amazing. <laughs> God, you're fantastic. God, I hope you know how much I think you're awesome. But there's no like, you know, in so many of the classic hymns, the very last verse of the hymn is, you know, a Trinitarian verse, you know, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, you know, I'm not going to sing it, but um, even the fact that there's, there's a de-emphasis on doctrinal theology is, is to say that we've looked at the scriptures and we've decided that's that the doctrinal ones are not important. The um, what's really important is living uh, with a sort of like humility and charity towards your fellow person and understanding that you're at the mercy of Providence. Um, and, and it's more of like a, a virtue system than it is a coherent theological framework. Uh, but again, even to decide that, that that's what the Bible really means is to say, well, when we look at what, hap- what happens with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and all the, everybody through that, what we're really looking for is the moral lesson. That is a lens of reading the scriptures that is more of the way that Thomas Jefferson reads the scriptures, right, <laughs> than it is the way that the church reads the scriptures. Like – even the things that you bring about, like, what is the Bible supposed to teach me about life is a set of biases. And it's a set of biases on which like churches like yours would have been built because we're like, okay, what we really need to know is how do we keep our marriage together and raise kids that are going to be good kids? Well, I want to, I want to jump in on something. You know, when you talked about the worship songs, I was, you know, I have a lot of friends that are still in the Protestant worship leading world. And there was a couple years ago, there was a song that came out. I think it came out of, I don't know what church it was, Elevation or something like that. It was called, it was called, uh, oh, what the heck was the name of that song? <clears throat> the Reckless, it was The Reckless Love. Remember that's The Reckless Love of God? Yes. Did you ever? Yes. Okay. Now, here's what's, here's what's. Something, something, yeah. Reckless Love of God. Yeah, that one. Right. Okay, so here's the deal. There were like, I think, three or four churches in my hometown that outlawed that song, Protestant churches. Oh. They outlawed it on the basis of doctrine. Okay, so they would get like super worked up about certain doctrinal things and be like, well, we have determined that that word reckless is not a theologically correct word to use in front of God. And, you know, and I'm not here to debate whether or not you like that song, but I just found it really, really interesting. Or I, I find it really, really interesting when people act like they have this badge and gun to be the doctrine police and they're going to run around you know pointing the fingers at other people at other protestants and being like hey you can't sing that song that way you can't sing long that's that way but when you ask them well by what basis do you make those decisions it's just their own theology it's their own thing it more than that it tends to be their own taste exactly it's their own taste and it's their own brand of what they want their church to look like but it, it's nothing 
there's, I guess my point of it was to say, well, what makes them more right than the guy who wrote that song? You know why Nestor's getting all, all worked up about this is, and why I'm getting all worked up about this, and Keith Little, <laughs> while, you're getting, while you're getting all worked up about this too, is because this is exactly how we used to think. This is yeah. exactly how I, this was, I was all in on this. And for what I thought were completely, undeniably concrete and hardcore and truthful and pure motivational reasons, not realizing that I'm, I'm, I'm basically making myself the Pope, you know? Yeah, you, you want to protect doctrine. You want to protect truth. You want to protect, and let, let's use this word. They want to protect, quote, orthodoxy, okay? Yeah. So, and I don't mean orthodox like Eastern Orthodox. I mean, like, in their view, it's like, hey, we're protecting the deposit of faith, the true early church doctrine of, you know, Christianity. But when you talk to them about about the authority of the church, it completely falls apart. It's so it's so hypocritical to me because on one hand, it's like we're, we want to honor all of this theological talk. And I think ultimately it's because they want to make themselves sound smart. But at the end of the day, they don't have anything in their in their bag of tricks that any other you know, fundamentalist Protestant or, or Pentecostal Protestant or whatever has in their bag of tricks. It's all the same because at the end of the day, you wind up with this. Who gets to decide whether or not your doctrine is the right doctrine? So when, when I used to get lectured by certain types, and, and I'll just say it, it was typically like uber-reformed types about yeah. doctrine. And this is even before I was Catholic, you know. They would always want to argue about um, – you know, doctrine and doctrine and justification. <laughs> never get involved in a land war in Asia and never get involved with a reformed person when it comes to justification. <laughs> <laughs> well, it used to just make me, it used to just, just irritate me because I would just, I, you know, I throw that out. I just say, well, at the, like, here was my big argument, right? You can tell how intellectual I am. I'm not up there with, with Matt and, and Keith Little here because here was, here was my <laughs> comeback. Oh yeah. Well, what makes you so smart? That was my big comeback to these pastors, you know, when they would get on me about all this stuff, you know, and that was even before I was Catholic. I can think of like, I mean, this came to a fore for me when uh, the whole like same sex marriage debate kind of ignited in our, uh, our, our local church. This was a thing in Canada a long time ago, but it was more recent in the States. And so, of course, it bubbled up to, to Canada again, that discussion. I mean, we'd... And as a church, you know, non-denominational church, we had no real statement on this. Uh, we didn't have a lot of our, we were a journey church, right? We didn't have a lot of our doctrines defined. It was kind of like we're on journey together. We, we, Jesus is our center, our guide. We use the Bible, but nothing much was defined beyond that. And so, this became a question in our church. How do we deal with this? How do we, you know, what is our stance on, on same-sex marriage and gender issues? And I can remember like you guys are saying, we all had the same verses. We all had the same Bible to go to go with. It was a matter of how we chose to interpret those verses. Like some people would say, and I've come to the conclusion that it's pretty clear from the Bible, I, I think, and the Catholic Church would affirm this traditional position. But we all had the same verses. And some would say, well, look, these verses are interpreted this way to, to affirm this idea. And these verses are over here are interpreted this way to oppose this idea. And then well, you know, we're just arguing verses here. Let, let's, what do the theologians say? So we'd pull out like theologian over here says this and theologian over here says this and here's some lived experience over here and here's th this idea over here. And at the end of the day, we were essentially deciding for ourselves what we believed based on the same scriptures, 
but then augmented by different things we read and ultimately you know we just kind of picked which interpretation that we that we decided was the right one and and yeah i mean these weren't like small issues i used to think this and you guys maybe are in the same camp i used to think that okay we're divided church all different denominations like you know however many there are believing different things but in the fundamentals we agree and then as soon as you began to dig into those fundamentals with anybody you realize quickly that no even on how we're saved what marriage is you know what what the trinity is in some cases what god is america is on fire right now and there is chaos erupting in our streets. And, and let's go back to part of the reason that this is all happening, and that is because of the way that black people were treated by the fact that they were dragged over against their will into this country and subjugated to some of the worst that humanity has to offer. Guess what? During those debates, there were abolitionists who were using the scriptures to justify the freedom of the slaves. And there were slaveholders using the same scriptures to justify slavery. This is not a small matter. <laughs> this is not something you can say, well, you know, we just disagree on the minor points. That's a major, major flaw. That is something that, that, that cries for a magisterium to say, no, this is what it says. This is what it doesn't say. This is a moral evil. This is a moral good. End of story. Not only that, but, you know, I've heard that argument used many times. It's like, well, as long as we, you know, we can, we can agree on the majors and we can have, you know, disagreement on the minors. Well, who gets to decide what a major is and what a minor is? Like, where is that written down? And, I mean, what does that, what does that mean when you can say that anything related to our faith is a minor issue? Well, this comes back to that question. Yeah, that question, the word that you used, orthodoxy, which I heard used as well. And and the word orthodoxy in the context that I heard, in the evangelical context, I heard sometimes people say, well, you know, anything that's affirmed by the creeds, which we never really prayed in any of the churches that I went to. Uh, <laughs> we, prayed them in the, we prayed them in our church, but we didn't believe them. And we literally, we literally said the Apostles' Creed and sometimes even the Nicene Creed, okay, but I remember I called out this this super liberal pastor dude who who made a he made a public statement that there was an atheist convention in Des Moines one year and he he t- he took it upon himself to make a statement where he said that we as United Methodists have more in common with the atheists than we do the fundamentalists because at least we don't run around telling everybody they're going to hell and I took issue with this guy and I was like, I don't agree with that at all. You know, and I, I appealed to the creed and he, and he said, hold on. He said, well, we're not a creedal church. And I said, we say the creed of my church every, he says, well, we, the creed for us is kind of like, you know, it's something historical and nice, kind of like grandma's, you know, recipe for cookies, but it's not authoritative. And I think that's, I mean, and I thought the guy was crazy. But the truth is, he's absolutely right. It's the logical end of the argument, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, oh, we have this creed, but we don't really mean it. But historically, let's say you do believe in the creed. Uh, let's see, you do believe in one God, you know, and that uh, and Jesus Christ is only begotten Son, and so on and so forth. When do we get the Nicene Creed? We get it in 325 AD, yeah, at the Council of Nicaea. When do we get the canon of the New Testament? Later than that. 50, 60 years later. 
and, and a series of councils that go into the early 400s. <laughs> like, yeah. So you're telling me that for the early church, first of all, for 325 years, there was nothing that necessitated them setting out a creed affirming the full humanity and full divinity of Christ because everybody in the whole Christian world was basically on the same page except for the, the heretical sex. So 325 years in, what's holding the church together? 50 years after that, they come up with the scriptures. And you're telling me that the churches don't splinter into a thousand denominations until after we go with the scriptures as the sole rule of faith? Like what's something tells me that that, that you've, you've messed up your authority system when you've switched to that because that's when you've actually diluted the authority and made it subjectivized. Amen. Amen. And what I, what I find interesting is that when you're debating this topic with people, they presume sola scriptura. And, and as Catholics, we have to somehow we have the benefit. We have to the burden of proof on us to prove sola scriptura. When my argument is always, no, you have the burden of proof because Sola Scriptura came way, way later in history. Yeah. So you have to prove that to me. You can't just you can't just show up and say this is how it is. You know, deal with it. You you have to prove it, and you can't. Kind of kind of the crazy thing for me in all this is how unbundled this all becomes from history, right? I mean, in in my context, I was in a Protestant uh, Pentecostal church, like a Baptist church, a non denominational church. In in not in any of these churches did we even have an awareness of the creed. Like it was just never mentioned, right? So we split off from the creed in one context. We've you know, split off from even knowing that the Bible uh, was put together so much so much later than you know the emergence of the church and the creed. Like you're absolutely right, Matt. That the, the creed in that sense you know predates the the canon of the New Testament, the canon of the Bible. But we didn't even know we're so removed from history. I, I just wonder how many of these people were, were debating how many of us were just in the dark on these things in that timeline, just removed from history. I mean, I didn't know about the early church fathers. I didn't know about the development of the canon, of, of the creeds. I, I was given my Bible. I read my Bible. I listened to the pastor on Sunday. I read theological textbooks and all kinds of stuff from my particular small little slice of Christianity just totally split from the rest of the church and the rest of history, which I, th- I think is is kind of the natural progression of just taking the Bible alone. You just, you, not only do you rip this out of the context of the church where it was, what it was written for and written in, you know, the, the Bible is meant to be read in the context of the liturgy. You, you rip the Bible out of that context and then it also removes it from history altogether. So you're kind of just, you and your Bible and your denomination or your local church just completely separated from everything else, history, other Christians, other, it's really kind of mind boggling. Yeah. You're the, your, your interpretive lens is the spirit of the age, right? The zeitgeist. It's whatever's, Whatever is most important issue that the headlines are telling you is most important. Uh, but it also makes you ignorant. You know, Marcus Grota is always talking about the verses I never saw. And I think between the three of us, we could do about four more hours on that particular topic. <laughs> yeah. But how about this one? Like in Second Timothy, when Paul is telling Timothy how to carry on the church in his absence, Paul knowing that he's going to die, Right. And that the church is – Paul presuming that Christianity is going to continue after his death. 
he says to Timothy in, in Second Timothy, he says, you know, follow the pattern of sound words, you've, which you've heard from me, um, so on and so forth. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Like, it, in, a, in a just a bland evangelical context, it's just like spread the gospel. But in the context of St. Paul saying, this is how we preserve and defend the doctrine that's been handed on to us. You got this through the laying on the hand, on of hands. You turn around and lay hands on somebody else. And there's this sense of like the deposit of faith. And the other aspect of this too, you talk about being removed from history. I mean, how many times would we quote from your Christianity or whatever? C.S. Lewis is like 1900 years removed from Jesus. But why wouldn't we care about St. Irenaeus, who knew St. Polycarp, who studied under John the Apostle, who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper? Shouldn't we care about what that guy said about stuff? Well, I'll tell you what Irenaeus said about stuff. About stuff. He said, um, when we have such proofs, it's not necessary to seek among others the truth, which is easily obtained for the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, the church, most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who ever wishes draws from the drink of life. Like, would you have ever said, well, if there's a debate, we just, let's just ask the church. <laughs> but that's how the earliest Christians talked. That's how the guy who learned from the guy who learned from St. John the Apostle talked. Which to me, when I discovered that, and I can't, I don't know how you other guys were, it wasn't like I had discovered some piece of new information or a new insight or a new reflection. I discovered a completely foreign and alien way of looking at the world. You're telling me that there's this outside authority that guards and defends and protects and pervades this? What is this? Does this, does this still exist? <laughs> you know? One, one thing that kind of like hit me, okay, was I remember when I read Rob Bell's first book that came out, you know, Love Wins. Yeah. And no, Velvet Elvis, my bad. Velvet Elvis. Okay. And at the time, you know, Rob was pretty influential guy in, you know, he had those NUMA videos that were awesome. Oh, yeah. His that's that's what I knew. Up. Yeah, yeah, like, and I, I, I've been to, I went to his church to hear him preach and stuff like that. You know, I, I saw him preach at Willow Creek once, and it was amazing. Well, he writes Velvet Elvis, and I remember reading this and thinking, this guy is like, he's opening up something that I didn't understand. But when he talked about the idea that the real way to do Christianity is to like always be repainting and reinterpreting and revisioning and re you know framing everything and basically what he did was he took apart this idea that said there were set doctrines and set ways to think about things with the faith um, and I remember like he called it brickianity and if you take one brick out the whole thing falls down well, yeah, that was the whole concept of his Numa thing. Numa was like the breath of the spirit continues to inform and shape and renew and rethink doctrine. Yeah. So like and the truth is when you hear that, you kind of if 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 you've grown up in sort of a stale, boring, lame, irrelevant church environment, okay? And then you hear something like that, you go, "Whoa, this is interesting, right?" But then when you saw, and I'm not beating up on Rob Bell, but when you when I saw over time what the trajectory of what happened with that, you know, and how he became less and less what I would refer to as orthodox in, in his different writings and different things that he was doing, then I came up against, you know, the, the, the Catholic idea. It presented a completely different paradigm 
one that when I came against, when I when I came up with it, or when I came into contact with it, it just blew my mind. And it was the paradigm that you you see about in, in the book of Jude, where he says that the faith has been delivered to the saints, you know, and and this idea that the job of the church is not to reinvent and reinterpret the gospel. It's to preserve and protect the gospel. That's a completely mind-blowing thing that happened to me because I had grown up with this idea that, well, we have to take the gospel and reinterpret it, reinvent it, and, uh, you know, make it relevant so that people who don't go to church will want to come to church and hear it. And the way we do that is to try to reframe it. Well, it's, it's very easy to take that a step further and not just reinterpret it or reframe it, but change it completely. And when I, when I saw that happening in my own denominational situation, and then I started to read Catholic theologians and, and, and read the scriptures d- differently in, in the lens of what some of my Catholic friends were telling me, it's like this light just went off and it was like, wait a second. The church's job, you know, Luke 10, 16, Jesus said, he who hears you hears me. And he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's like this idea of look, I'm not I'm not here to like massage something and make it palatable to you. I'm here to bring you the same gospel message that Jesus Christ brought to his apostles. And I don't have to get cute with it. I don't have to make it culturally relevant. I don't have to reinterpret it. I just have to protect it and preserve it and get this, present it. And when I when I listened to what, what Catholics were saying, I'm like, this this made sense to me because that's the mission ultimately, isn't it, of the Catholic faith is and the church is to pass on the deposit of faith in its pure form. And and that's something that a lot of a lot of what I was living in in the evangelical world, they weren't even pretending to do that. They were like, no, we have to, we have to change this. We have to fix this because it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and it's often, it's often fixed. I know that this bugged you too, Keith. You've mentioned it before. Uh, it's often fixed through, through voting, right? Or through like, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like councils oh, and general assemblies and oh my gosh. Yeah. The UMCGC, yeah. which I hope <laughs> Nestor never had the misfortune of attending. <laughs> oh, dude, we had we have general conference in the Methodist Church, and it's like every four years, and they never get anything done. And then it's just about campaigning. You know, they just they just took a big vote, and then when people weren't happy with the, with the result, they just disobeyed it, and then they campaigned to elect different delegates to change the vote. I'm like, this is insanity. <laughs> I wonder. I mean, this this comes back to that issue of authority. Like to me, to me as an evangelical. You know, if I would have heard the word authority, I would have honestly had no clue. Like, authority, what? Like, what's the? What do you mean, authority? We, we don't. I don't think we even considered the Bible as an authority. Like, it was our rule of faith. We read it to figure out what to believe and what not to believe. But I don't think I even would have ever used the word authority to describe. I mean, anything. Where, where? Yet this becomes like the 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 central question as you begin to realize that you know sola scriptura is untenable as we all found that it was authority becomes the central thing like well then what is the authority what did how did you guys wrestle with that question of authority was that anywhere in your keith was it anywhere as you preached like you know to your youth group or on a sunday morning was was authority you know what gave you the authority to preach was that anywhere ever in your on your radar well no no because 
where I felt the authority was, was the scripture itself. So I felt like my job was to teach the Bible. Okay. So my job, and I used to tell my kids this, my, my youth group, I'd say, I'd say this, and I was a great youth pastor. I'd say, my job is to teach the Bible and try to make it not boring. And your job is to learn and bring your friends. And if you bring enough of them, I'll like shave my head or something, you know, or whatever. Um, that's a, that's a then classic it, youth pastor right, yeah. right there. And, and I mean, apparently Matt has done that, but the, the, the fact is <laughs> for different reasons, for different <laughs> reasons, I shave my head for different reasons. <laughs> well, oh yeah. I mean, dude, I've done it all, man. I've, I've, I've had bleached hair. I don't know if I ever shaved. I shaved one leg one time. So some kid could go to church camp. Um, anyway, that's another podcast, Keith Little, all the dumb things that youth pastors have to do. Youth ministry but, stunts. Oh gosh. Yeah, well, anyway, my, I felt like my job is to teach you the Bible. But here's the thing. I did so in a way that I believed was, you know, the clear teaching of Scripture. Well, here's what the Bible says. But you know what? Every once in a while, I would run up against things that I would say, well, some Christians believe this about this, and some Christians believe that about this. And I guess we just have to decide what we want, you know. And that always felt weird to me. But at the end of the day, I mean, I was the one with the, with the microphone and the Bible, so I guess I was calling the shots. And, you know, most, most of like the time— like that scene from The Wedding Singer, yeah. right? You know, when Adam Sandler grabs it and says, I have the microphone and you will listen to every word that I am going to say. That's how authority tends to function in any church that's run by a person with a big personality. Yeah, and it's—well, this is how I do it. This is my church. I'm the authority here, and, and you know— Whatever. If you don't like it, then you have to go someplace else. Um, But that's, you know, there's no sense of a larger authority beyond. It's just kind of like, well, what we would do is this. We would appeal to, you know, whoever our favorite theologians were. So you'd be like, well, okay, you'd you'd meet a guy and you'd size him up by, you know, well, hey, well, who do you listen to? Oh, I listen to Tim Keller. Oh, I listen to John Piper. Oh, I listen to Mark Driscoll, you know, or whatever. And it's kind of like, oh, well, what does he say about this? So whenever you would run into a difficult passage, you know, you didn't look up the church fathers or a church council. You just, you know, you Googled, well, what did Tim Keller say about this? Because he's pretty smart, you know, and then you just kind of, bring that back or, or whatever. But what do you do when like John Piper and John MacArthur disagree about something? Then what are you going to do? Then you fight, right? It's like, Oh, you know, but everybody but has even to have the, their Even the fact that you're having that conversation shows that you're appealing to something outside of scripture. Absolutely. But people don't see it. They think, they think that's just what they need to do because here's the deal. And, and maybe this is too dramatic fellas. But here's what I think, ultimately. I think in most people's minds that want to do Solo Scriptura, I think if you push them hard enough, they will go beyond it, except for they won't accept anything that has to do with Catholicism. It's like, I'll hmm. grant anything, but just nothing that has to look, nothing that looks like what the Catholics do, because they just can't handle that. <laughs> so there's this article uh, at the Coming Home Network that I really encourage people to check out. It's by Rod Bennett, who's fantastic. Um, he wrote Four Witnesses and the Apostasy that Wasn't, but he's got this sort of imagined dialogue between two seminary students about Scripture. And the one guy is talking to the other guy at the seminary and says, so do you go to, do you go to a good seminary? He's like, yeah, I go to a good seminary. Well, what makes a good seminary? Well, they teach the Scriptures correctly. Well, how do you know they teach the Scriptures correctly? Well, because they're interpreting and, and dividing the Word of God rightly. Well, but according to whom? Um 
Well, essentially according to me. Well, if you're dividing and judging their ability to interpret the scriptures, why are you going to the seminary instead of teaching the seminary professors? <laughs> you know, because that's kind of what it boils down to. It It's your affinity for one thing or another. Um, and it's your judgment that, well, I go to this church because that pastor tre- teaches the truth. You've already put yourself as an authority over the pastor when you say that. Absolutely. And people, people, do, it's just like blinders, you know, they just do not recognize that they're doing I that. never recognized it. And I said that kind of thing all the time. Yeah. Uh, you'd always tell people, look, you know, go to a town, find a good Bible believing church and find a good church that teaches the Bible. But what does that mean? You know, I tell you what it never meant. It never meant go to the Catholic church. Right. No but it should have. But what we have in our minds is like this idea of our own theological, you know, milkshake that we have floating around in our head that we've mixed all these ingredients into. And that somehow for us is true. But I remember like when I would see people change their minds, when I would change their mind or I'd see people deal with different things, you know, you just realize that if you just have the Bible, it doesn't work. You know, there's, there's, there's things you can find on YouTube of different preachers that are so completely convinced of their teaching to where they're the only ones that are right and everybody else is wrong. And when you watch these guys, you're just like, okay, this guy's pretty convinced. But then you find the same type of guy on the other side of the issue. And it's like, where, where do you go? You have to have this external authority. Otherwise, it doesn't. It, it falls apart. But they would never claim that that's what they're doing. So my colleague Ken Hensley always likes to parade out his buddy Vincent of Lorraine. So when when my colleague Ken was a Baptist pastor, you know, and he got confronted with this stuff, and so he dug into the old school sources. He found Vincent of Lorraine writing in 434 A.D. This is just barely after the canon of the New Testament has been firmed up. Um. Long, long, I mean, we're talking like 1,100 years before Sola Scriptura. This is 434 AD, the Comanatorium. And he says this, he says, if one should ask one of the heretics, meaning the people who disagree with the church, what grounds have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? Well, the heretic has the answer ready, for it is written. And forthwith, he produces a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, the Psalms, the apostles, the prophets, by means of which interpreted by a new and the unhappy soul may be uh, precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to scripture? They do indeed. And with a vengeance, Um, you will see an infinite, infinite heap of instances, hardly a single page of their writings, which does not bristle with plausible quotations from the new Testament or the old. This guy's writing 1100 years before Sola Scriptura addressing the stuff that is splitting churches every day across the world um, because the appeal is, well, it is written. <laughs> I remember when I found St. Francis de Sales, right, who was the saint of the church, who was writing kind of, you know, contemporary with the Reformation, right? And he was, I think, Bishop of Geneva, right? So like a yeah, uh, where Calvin was running his like <laughs> dictatorship, right? You and think I, you think Footloose was brutal? Try living in Geneva under Calvin. <laughs> they canceled more than dancing there. <laughs> I, I what when I encountered? So I wasn't even a Catholic yet when I encountered him. I was on the journey, right? And I read 
what he wrote in response to the reformers. And it was like, his writing was, okay, well, who gives you the authority to break from this church? Who gives you the authority to teach what you're teaching? Like, which bishop has appointed you to start this church here and to teach this, like, these beliefs? And when I first read that, I thought, like, this idea of authority was like, he doesn't need the authority. He just starts a church. He just goes and opens up a church, hangs a shingle and starts teaching, right? Gets a worship band together, like gets some baskets for communion, little tiny plastic cups, right? With, with, for the, for the grape juice. And, but then it dawned on me like, no, like this was like one of the first guys doing this. And right away, the question was, well, where does your authority come from? Because we've all been over here doing this thing, this Catholic church thing. And, you know, when the bishop, you know, appoints the priest and the priest is in the parish and like, you know, when that, you know, when that priest dies, a new priest is appointed and the bishop retires or dies, a new bishop is appointed. And suddenly, you know, these reformers are doing their own thing. Well, of course, somebody asks them, where's your authority come from? Like we're so, I was so used to that just being the norm. Like you just start a church. Like you just go and start a church. If you go to seminary, yeah. maybe you don't even do that. Maybe you just have a Bible and you're just a charismatic guy. You start a church and do a thing. But it was from the second that it started, the Reformation began to split the Catholic Church. These, these little, it was questioned. The question was, you know, where does your authority come from? But we're so far, you know, removed, 500 years removed from that. That question is not asked anymore, but it's still just as as relevant. You know, where does yeah. your authority come from? There was this one thing over here that historically were broken from. You know, what gave us <laughs> that authority? Yeah, that's okay. So this is, I'm not even sure when it happened. It, I think it happened over the course of like maybe six months, but I began to realize the burden of proof is not on the Catholic Church to prove that it has legitimate authority. The burden of proof is on me to prove why my idiosyncratic 21st century interpretation of the Scripture is the one sole interpretation that can be trusted. Burden of proof is on me, not on the Catholic Bingo. Church. Yeah, you're you're 100% right about that. And it, it's amazing to me how we just don't get that. It's like, why, why should I believe what the Catholic Church says? I mean, because here's the thing. And like, I don't know, maybe it was different for you guys. But for me, because I didn't grow up in a, in a dialogue with Catholics. I didn't grow up. Oh, like not, not at all. I didn't even so, know any. Yeah. So to me, like Catholicism was just like another denomination. You know, it was like, well, why is this denomination any better than any other denomination? And then it kind of occurred to me one day, it was like, because the Catholic Church is not a denomination. It's the denominator. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that everything else came from, so to speak, not like give birth to, but like a derivative of it and, or separated itself from it. But like that's the biggest thing is if you, can, if you can wrap your mind around the fact that the Catholic Church is Christianity – then, then you start to go, okay, well, then by what basis did people did people remove themselves from that and still retain the idea that they're Christians? And, and how did they do that? And by what authority? And how far can they go before they're off the reservation? And how about this one, which I didn't realize until just a couple of years ago, uh, a guest uh, actually that came in to tape the journey home made this point, and it, I, I, my jaw dropped because it, it never occurred to me before. What are the things that all Christians agree on? The Trinity, the canon of the New Testament, um, the divinity of Jesus, the virgin birth. 
all those things were major flashpoints that they had councils on in the early church to settle because this was like a, an internal war on. What are the things that were completely accepted by everybody and weren't even matters of debate in the early church? The Eucharist, the efficacy of baptism, um, you know, the authority like of that. the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> right, right, right. These are the things that divide Christians now. Those are like all common assumptions. All the things that Christians believe right now in common are stuff that was decided on and affirmed and dogmatized by the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but it's, it's, it's true, though. I mean, you go back and look at it. Look at what people are, are freaking out on each other about. It's, it, it, you mentioned the thousands of you know, big and little issues. Can't even agree on baptism. It was an unequivocally universal understanding that baptismal regeneration was a thing. And you could get it if you were a baby. You could get it if you were on your deathbed. Yeah, I, I had Doug Beaumont on this program to talk about baptism uh, based on a, a challenge that had been issued by a Protestant apologist. The, the picture Doug painted, I mean, he essentially said, look, if you don't believe in baptismal regeneration, you're in such a small minority, like a laughable minority, looking at the context of, of Christian history and even contemporary Christianity. Like, you're in such a small minority, it's it's hilarious. Like, it might seem like it's huge to you, like today in the 21st century in North America, but in the, the large scale of things, like, no, like, like, not at all was this the historical belief of the church. Yet, like you say, it's, you know, it seems like so few people believe that. And, that, and this is a, a live issue for debate yeah. in Christianity, but it's it's... It's not. It shouldn't be. <laughs> it, well, and it, it, when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, interpreting John 6, when Jesus says, my flesh is true food and my, my blood is true drink, you don't have to believe that when a priest says the prayers of con consecration over the bread and wine, it is the flesh and blood, the real presence of Jesus. But you have to acknowledge that for the first 1,517 years of Christianity, everybody did believe that. Well, and here's what I think is interesting. Like if when you talk about what Keith just said about – baptismal regeneration, um, you know, here's what's so funny about this. And I, again, it's not funny, it's sad. But you talk about how, like, Doug Beaumont said that, you know, if, if you don't believe that, you're in this super minority. But yet, some for some reason, that is one of those issues that gets relegated into a lesser issue that we can disagree about if we're Protestants. You know, mm -hmm. it's not one of the major issues. It's like, it's like, well, you can disagree about baptism. You have to believe that that you have to believe that Jesus is divine, God is a Trinity, and the canon of the New Testament is what it is. But when it comes to baptism and what it does and the the mode and function of it, that's one of those minor issues that we can disagree about. I mean, it's it's incredible. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Because we believe that baptism actually saves, <laughs> but somehow that's a minor issue. <laughs> Yeah, how did that become a minor issue? Like, when did that happen? But it's all over the scriptures, too. And this is the other thing, too, that it, uh, that I discovered in reading the Fathers, is this whole sense of the understanding of typology. Um, because, you know, when in my background, um, I'd get the, the, the Strong's Concordance out, and if I wanted to know what the Bible said about baptism, I'd get it out and I'd flip to the page on baptism and look at how many times baptism was mentioned in the Bible. Except when you go to a Catholic baptism ceremony and have your baby baptized, it's like, you know, just as Noah and his family were saved through the flood, or as the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of creation, or Naaman the Syrian went down into the Jordan to be washed from his leprosy. It's everywhere. Um, and that understanding of, of Scripture as not just proof text, but as this whole gigantic story 
that is com- that is constantly doing callbacks, like more callbacks than a Dave Chappelle comedy show. Like his script is calling <laughs> back stuff constantly to like let you know that this is to fulfill what was spoken here or this is a reference. Are you paying attention? This is exactly the way we phrased it back in this part of the scriptures. It's it's a completely different way than going the proof text method. Yeah, well, look at the Eucharist, okay? You can, you can and I did, like, kind of just gloss over John 6, right? We, as as Protestants, would always affirm the most literal— hyperbole, we yeah, call it. Yeah, you know, we'd affirm the most literal reading of the Bible in every other situation, but somehow in John 6, we would f- work our way out of there when it's, when it's clearly literal, right? But we somehow—one of those verses we didn't see that Marcus talks about, right? Okay, we could dismiss that. But if you actually, like you're saying, read the Bible in this typological perspective, understanding the history and the context of, of the Jewishness of, of the scriptures, you know, you can't, you can't get away from John 6 being taking Christ at his word if you understand the whole context of what's happening there. Like you're saying, but we, we've lost that. We lose that. We read this just as, as proof texting or in isolation. But no, you read that in the context. Goodness gracious, read it in the context of the church fathers. Like you said, it's unanimous. Like nobody, nobody except the heretics disagree that the body, that what Christ is talking about in John 6 is the Catholic Eucharist, is the real presence. Nobody is disagreeing with that until <laughs> until the Reformation, right? I mean, that's like one of those things is like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just common common belief, yeah. But what I, what I hear like some people, like I heard James White say this one time, he was like, well... You know, people back in, in, you know, the first century, they didn't think in those sort of philosophical Aristotelian terms of substance and accidents and all that. You know, it's like we're so much smarter than everybody else. You know, I mean, and, and I think it was C.S. Lewis who did talk about that chronological snobbery, you know, where it's it's mm-hmm. we know better than they do because why? Because we're alive now and they were alive then. Because we're very complicated people with very complex feelings. We have so we have so many feelings. Yeah, they they couldn't have possibly understood that. So therefore, I'm right. I mean, if that's not the worst argument I've ever heard in my life, it's like, well, no, I'm going to sit in judgment over everybody that lived 2,000 years ago because they couldn't understand this is my body, this is my blood. Like that was too confusing for them. So we don't have to we don't have to pay attention. So what else couldn't they understand? God is a Trinity. What else couldn't they understand? Jesus is God and a man. I mean, it's 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 amazing the lengths that people will go to in order to protect their their theological position while at the same time claiming to to be following the scripture alone. But yet they don't. It's 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 completely I I mean, I didn't either. I didn't either. It was always like, you know, my favorite church that I was going to when I was coming into my faith really was, uh, you know, like a Calvary Chapel where our pastor we, he was like, we just teach the Bible here, and it was verse by verse, scripture through the through the through the the sermons. You know, it's just like book. We're gonna be in a book until we're not in that book anymore. And I loved learning the scriptures that way. It was a great way to learn the Bible. But you know, even in in those environments, there's a lot of commentary, and there's a lot of interpretation that happens. And even when we say, well, we just teach the Bible, I've never been, maybe you guys have, maybe they have these in Canada, I don't know. I've never been to a church where literally anybody has just stood up and read the text and sat down, except the Catholic Church. That shocked me the first time I saw it, by the way. Yeah, same. I'm like, you're just going to let it sit there? 
You're just going to let it sit there? Guy reads the text, sits down. And sometimes, like at the daily mass, like our priest, he doesn't even give a homily sometimes. And I asked him one time, I said, why don't you give a homily during the daily mass? And he said to me, because sometimes God's word just needs to speak on its own and people don't need to hear from me. And I'm like, dude, that's that's like a mic drop moment right there, you know, because you find me a Protestant preacher who would ever do that, who would ever just like get up, read the Bible and then sit down. But nobody's pot roast would be burning. Nobody's pot roast would be burning. Yeah, I know. I mean, everybody would be fine, but that could never happen because why? Because their their whole thing rests on that man or woman's interpretation and what they have to tell me what it means, which is complete. I mean, doesn't this sound crazy to you guys? Like the scripture's so clear that I have to explain it to you. <laughs> it's it's wild. But but there's also this other aspect of it too that I, I didn't put two and two together on. And, and that is, I'm not going to listen to the traditions or the interpretations. I'm just going to listen to the scriptures. Uh, but then you run across uh, in Dave Verbum when it says, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For both of them, flowing from the same divine wellspring, in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. That's from the Second Vatican Council. I, I don't think I certainly didn't think about this when I was, you know, even up until the late, probably the last part of Bible college. Sacred Scripture is a tradition. Amen, brother. So, it someone, is. Some, someone said, you know, we don't have this in book form yet, but this is important, and because you know the apostles told me that I have to preserve and guard this, you have to preserve and guard this too. And the other thing about it is that. W- when you start to understand that sacred scripture is one piece of this bigger whole, and then you go back and read the scriptures, it makes a lot more sense. Like why would St. Paul say, well, one of the things that we want to make sure to let everybody know before I pass on is how stupid the Galatians were. Like, <laughs> like that's he literally like he, he greets all the churches, you know, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you. He greets the Galatians, you stupid Galatians. What's wrong with you? Um, why would we have that? Because scripture is correcting an established, solidified liturgy and tradition that was already in place that is not explicitly laid out in the scriptures themselves. Well, so I like the, how you said that, Matt. Yeah. It is The scripture itself is a tradition. It is a tradition that we have the same 27 books of the New Testament. You know, like that is a tradition that's that's. There's no way around it. There's no divine table of contents. And when I when I talk to Protestants about this that want to just rail on me about, well, Catholic Church, man-made traditions, I'm like, dude, thank God for the man-made tradition of the Catholic Church because that gave you your Bible. You were that implicitly you your placing Bible. your faith in that tradition exactly. when you say that the New Testament books are inspired. <laughs> this, yeah. this came to a head for me when I was in uh, an evangelical uh, worship service uh, last few years ago um, with some family members just attending. We were, we were in town and Esther was being preached on, right? And in our Catholic canon of the Bible yeah, that, that, a, that, that was extra Esther, yeah. yeah, right? That was the canon uh, up until the Reformation when some of these books began to be questioned and then eventually appendixed and then kind of removed from the, the Old Testament. This pastor is is preaching on Esther and and goes, Gosh, guys, I wish we knew what Esther was thinking here. It'd be so helpful to know. And and I've told the story before, but I'm looking at my Bible 
because I had a Bible with me. But it was the it was the, the Septuagint, you know, version of the Old Testament with with Esther's internal, you know, dialogue with God and these prayers and it's beautiful. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, yo, dude, I got it right here. Like this is what, you know, the church has always said belongs in the the canon of the Bible. But you don't have that because as a Protestant, those bits of Esther were removed from your canon of the Bible. And bits of Daniel and you know, yeah. So I mean like that was that that brought to a to a a, a forefront for me, like the idea that yes, this the Bible itself is a tradition. And in, and some don't even subscribe to the, 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 the larger tradition of this. Some reject, you know, what Christians have had in that Bible, in that tradition for for the, the, the length, the bulk of Christian history. So, I mean, and, and this pastor wouldn't even, I don't think he even knew this. I don't think he even realized that the tradition mm-hmm. he held in his hands, A, was a tradition, but then B, you know, wasn't wasn't the tradition that Christians have held to for most of Christianity. And that people would have only heard until the invention of the printing press and the widespread nature of literacy, literacy people would have only experienced in the way that you, Nestor, were talking about where they walk into church and just hear it read, period. I mean, that's they wouldn't have had their own Bibles to walk around with anyway. I mean, they, they only would have, the only place they would have heard the scriptures is in the context of the authority, authoritative church that put them together in the setting of the liturgy. Yeah. You had the trope that uh, Catholic Bibles were chained right in the churches. So the, the faithful <laughs> yeah. couldn't read them. Well, but yeah. that's because they're like $50,000 a piece <laughs> by today's standards. That's yeah. like locking your cars. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah I, I made a video about, about all that called the Catholic church's biblical deal with it. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, or no, wait, that was a different one. One about, did the Catholic church change the Bible? And my answer was, yes, it did. The Catholic church changed the Bible when it, when it added the new Testament, you know? And it's, it's, I mean, when you think about it, you have to, like you said, you implicitly, you implicitly submit to that authority when you, when you read the new Testament. But when you talk to Sola Scriptura guys, I think one thing that's really interesting is to say, well, if you love the Bible so much, then why don't you have all of it? If you care about it so much, then don't you want to read the, the, the scripture that Jesus read? Don't you want to, don't you want to have all the same books that, that the apostles had that, that the new Testament writers quoted from that they used. That was Matthew is obviously quoting from the Greek. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I had, I had, you know, I had Gary Matuda on this show a few weeks back. Oh, he's, he writes that he's got the, 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 the sort of definitive layperson's text. Yeah, on that. He's, he's written the book on the, the Deuterocanon, right? And he talks about, and this was, this kind of blew my mind, and I don't use that lightly. I mean, it really did. He, he I mean, not literally, but <laughs> he talks about the, the context that's missing from when we read the New Testament, the context that's missing by in the Protestant Bible by not having those deuterocanonical books, because you have things like prayer to the saints, like intercession of the saints, prayers for the dead. You have all these things that happened. You know, the, the, the Jewish faith wasn't this stagnant thing that stopped developing with the last prophet we find in the Protestant Old Testament canon. You know, there were was developments in the, in how God spoke to the Jewish people you know the catholic church understood that when they affirmed you know those books of the old testament but we not having those in the old testament you know gary says 
just you're so crippled as as uh, a Protestant Christian. Like no wonder why you don't understand the intercession of the saints or prayers for the dead because your Bible doesn't have the Old Testament context that kind of leads up to that 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 makes complete sense. Like you again, it's the, it's that the context thing. You're missing the context there. Yeah, and you know what's funny is that um, you know you'll bring up those books, uh, you know, First and Second Maccabees specifically, or you'll bring up the writings of the Church Fathers, and people say, well, that's not. You know, we don't know how reliable that is. That's not scripture itself. But, you know, you, you read any history books about any other pieces of history or any other source texts from other parts of that area, or you read Josephus or, you know, whoever it is, and you're like, well, this is a reliable account, you know. Like, <laughs> like There's this weird hermeneutic of suspicion that is applied to anything from the era of scripture that is not itself scripture, which is unnecessary. And they go, well, we don't know how reliable that is. Then say, okay, well, read the read the table of contents of the Bible. How reliable is that? You know, yeah. because because if you're going to say, well, I don't trust the writings of the church fathers, that's not reliable. Then you, when you read the table of contents of the of the scriptures, you are reading the church fathers. Yeah. And who articulates the modern day notion of sola scriptura? Who who introduces it to the world but Martin Luther, who argued that there was a canon within the canon of the New Testament? Like everything that was in the New Testament, he said, well, we can, I guess, keep it. But within it, there are books that are sort of more inspired, like Romans, you know, and, and the guy who tells us that scripture alone contains all that is necessary for salvation also wanted to excise books from the new testament also wanted to throw out hebrews and james and jude and even revelation you have to contextualize the the his understanding of sola scriptura was so individualistic and so geared towards affirming his own theology that he was willing to take books out of the established new testament if he had to in order to keep that doctrine pure and arguable by scripture alone yeah, I mean, and you look at Calvin, who essentially made himself the new pope, right? He wrote very strongly for his beliefs, and everyone else, you know, you guys are completely wrong. I'm totally right. This is the definitive way of interpreting this, and and no one else can say a word. I mean, again, like, where does that, where does that come from? I mean, I'm I'm thinking you you have these two kind of competing, I think, ideologies you have to adopt. The one is you mentioned before, I think, Matt, the idea that oh, of progress, like we know more than everyone else used to know as Christians. Like we're more evolved, we know more, we're smarter than those guys. They may have believed this for 1500 years, but we're smarter than that, right? That's I think one narrative that helps us to maybe to, to cope as evangelicals. And the other one is the conspiracy theory. Like, okay, so for 1,500 years, the church believed this and this about this, but but they got it wrong. Somehow, this church got it wrong, and we as Protestant Christians are reestablishing what was lost somewhere throughout history. And of course, like neither of those positions are supported by actual history. Like there's no, there's just no. I mean, I used to believe like somehow Constantine or somebody in this like ethereal like ancient times corrupted the church somehow, and it was a simple, easygoing thing. A uh, very organic church, and it got like bureaucratized and like I don't know, Romanized and totally corrupted. But but none of these the conspiracy theory thing. Talk to Rob Bennett about that. He's he's great on the conspiracy theory. He no, he's got the apostasy that, that wasn't is the text on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you going to try and tell me that the Da Vinci Code isn't accurate? <laughs> 
I know it's crazy. Um, it's it's in the fiction, <laughs> but it really should be in uh, in history. No, but, but but with that too, you know, you'll run into uh, so like this happens when I argue with Jehovah's Witnesses a lot. Um, I I dialogue with Mormons, but I argue with the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's just it's just the way the conversation goes. <laughs> but they'll say things like, you know, this is this belief is the ancient historic belief of the church. It was suppressed by the church, and that's why we have no records of it. Yeah, exactly. um, but in different denominations, we'll, we'll make mention of that. Well, if that's the case, how come I got records of the Manichaeans and the Gnostics and the Donatists and the Nestorians, you know, and the Montanists? How come I got records of every single heresy and variation from Catholic teaching except for you guys? <laughs> right? Uh, it's not like we're this the is, one true one. Yeah, that's they really wanted to get rid of us. No, as a matter of fact, you read against heresies by St. Irenaeus. One of the main reasons we know about them is because they spoke so vocally against them, um, and they used the scriptures to do it. So, I, I mean, it, you've got evidence of a scriptural church in the church fathers, but it's not scripture divorced from the church. It's this whole one big thing. And again, that's the thing I discovered when I went back into the into the church fathers and was trying to figure out this question. I wasn't finding a different an interesting insight into a scripture that I'd never thought of before. I was finding a whole completely different paradigm, a whole different like worldview, a whole different like framework for understanding how scripture was supposed to function in this thing called Christianity. And that's what kind of messed with my head. It, I went back looking for good quotes that I thought would be fun to post on my, you know, my Friendster wall, you know, or my MySpace headline. But I found something that like completely turned my whole like universe inside out. It is. And it is this whole different kind of way of understanding the place of scripture. I think Keith, you mentioned before the idea that, or maybe it was you, Matt, I can't remember who it was now. One of you guys said the idea that there's these two things flowing from the authority. I think it was you, Matt. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's from Dave Arabum. Dave Arabum, that's yeah. Second, second council, yeah. When you begin to understand that, like, I mean, it does. It completely changes your perspective on you know what the church is and what what scripture is used for. I mean, it's not this proof texting thing we have to keep interpreting. We have to. I mean, this is the thing that I often hear from converts. Right when you become Catholic, you suddenly realize you don't have to be the pope anymore. You don't have to hold all the authority in your hands in your head to make these decisions about what these different things mean. Wait a minute. There's this tradition. This thing that's always done this, you know, even you know, since the beginning, since these early church fathers, we find the the church authoritatively weighing in on these issues. It, it's this total, totally different kind of framework of way of understanding your faith and the, and the Bible, right? Yeah, and I, I to tap into both of your experience, and especially you, Nestor, since you were a youth minister, and this is this was your wheelhouse, and actually to tap into the our all common experience because we've all had. We've all been to the Cornerstone Festival, the Christian punk and metal, you know, camp out festival in Bushnell, Illinois. Rest in peace. Um, and we know <laughs> that in the late 90s and early 2000s, especially, this whole Christian punk metal hardcore scene was exploding. And it was all these people who were revolting against fundamentalist Christianity with their punk and metal bands, smoking cigarettes and having tattoos and, and you know, singing about how Jesus, you know, doesn't judge you. So many of my friends from that era when the cracks ca happened in Sola Scriptura for them, they were like, you know what? I'm done with Christianity. Exactly. I, I have the same experience. It's like, and so many of those bands, that's the same thing that happened to them. They're just, they, they're done with it all. They're done with it yeah. all because they didn't ever find the other way of looking at it. Right. Right. 
They're, they're, they're wall, you know, like that brickianity thing that Rob Bell was talking about. It fell apart on them because they didn't understand the way that it was supposed to work. When a false system doesn't work, you, you have no other choice but to abandon it altogether. But what they, what they failed to realize was there was a different way. There was the, 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 the way of the church that, I don't know, I feel like, it, it could have changed so many things for that that group that group of people. You know, what's interesting is, yeah, most of my friends from that era, a handful of them are still involved in the same kind of evangelical stuff. Uh, the bulk of them are agnostic, or more more, more than else, they just don't think it's worth it. it you know, uh, and a small fraction are like liturgical. Now, <laughs> I was going to bring this up because this is, you know, this is where this system goes to. I know I wrote a blog post, you know, early on in my conversion experience. Uh, called us, you know, Soul Scripture, a system designed to fail. Because when it fails, and it does seem to eventually fail, if you're really pursuing it to its end, this is what happens, right? I mean, I can think of guys who walked away from the faith because their interpretation, their understanding of, of the scriptures was a literal interpretation. And when they had holes poked in the science of Genesis, for example, that just shattered the whole system, right? Because you just had the Bible, you're the one choosing how to interpret that ultimately, if that hole is poked, you know, if that crack is, is made in your way of doing the Bible, suddenly the whole thing starts to fall apart because that's how you understood the Bible. And that's, that's just kind of a mundane kind of random thing. But if you, if you are the ultimate interpreter of the Bible and you say this must be totally literal, which lots of Protestant Christians hold to, well, then as soon as there's cracks in there, that, that then cracks breaks down the whole system, right? We, we yeah. all know people, like you're talking about, both you guys, you know, we all know people who, in that system, encounter something that doesn't, that doesn't jive, doesn't fit, and it breaks the whole thing down because they don't realize there's another way of doing this. You blame the IKEA cabinet if it's broken, you know, on unpacking. But if you just don't put it together the way it's supposed to be put together, you can only really blame your method, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of what it is. You know, you don't blame the Bible for the fact that sola scriptura doesn't work. You know, you blame that hermeneutic. It's like with anything, you know, you don't, you don't attack it because of the approach is wrong. You rethink the approach. Yeah. And it doesn't, the, the thing about it is it's, you know, it, it just, the, the simplest answer is this, it self-destructs because it's not biblical. You know, sola scriptura is not biblical. It's not, it doesn't work. It literally does not sustain itself under the weight of any type of questioning against it. You know, and, and I, I remember, you know, having a debate with someone about this and they're trying to prove to me that it's biblical and it just, it just absolutely falls apart when you when you scrutinize it in any way and yet they're completely clueless on how to deal with that the two places that they go when they say it's biblical what's one of the well the one of the places they go is the example All of the scriptures Bereans. god breathe yeah. <laughs> i'm looking at i'm looking at second timothy 316 <laughs> but, but yeah. the same thing applies to the one i was going to say which is from um acts uh, i think it's 10 maybe it's 17 
um, where he's talking about the Bereans, you know, were no, more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. The other one being Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen, which is you know all scripture is God breathed and useful for correction and a whole bunch of other good stuff. Um, I can't remember. It's been a long time since I did Bible quizzing. But both of those cases, when Paul is referring to Scripture and when talking to Timothy and when Luke is referring to Scripture, when describing the experience of Paul and Berea, what does he mean by Scripture? Exactly. The Old Testament. He means the Old Testament. So they're judging Paul's words to see, okay, we know that God spoke to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel. Let's see if what Paul's saying matches up with what God was saying to those guys to make sure whether or not the same God is speaking to Paul. That's what they were doing. They weren't saying, well, Paul, I'm not sure if what you're saying is right. Let me read Romans and see if what you're saying is matching up with, (laughs) you know, or, or second Peter, Paul, we're going to read your letters and see if it, you know, matches up with second Peter. (laughs) You know, there's these old school debates you can find on YouTube with uh, like Patrick Madrid and Carl Keating, like the early days of Catholic answers. Right. And they debate these guys and they just keep one particular debate. I listened to that. It was just hilarious. Like three hours of them just going back Every time they took the podium, they would say, show us the one verse that says sola scriptura is the rule of faith. Like, where's the one verse in the Bible that tells us we must only use the Bible as a rule of faith? Whenever they stand up, that's all they were saying the whole time. And and the Protestant debaters are going on all kinds of different tangents. And like, but you, you, you realize in any genuine discussion of this issue, you realize there isn't. There isn't that one verse that says, this is how we understand our faith. It's just this thing, the Bible. I mean, you, you, you talk about 2 Timothy 3.16. Of course, the scripture they're referring to, you know, Timothy couldn't have known, it's, you know, you've known these from your infancy, the Holy Scriptures. Well, Timothy couldn't have known the New Testament from his infancy. Paul wasn't a Christian when <laughs> Timothy was an infant. Like, this is in the New Testament. How can he know this, this letter that's being written? You know, it, it makes no sense, right? And then the other thing that that hit me reading a verse like this is, well, it doesn't say only Scripture is God breathed right, to equip you, or or this is the only thing that equips you. Even it, though that's how I would have read it, and me too, at the time. right? And I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> you too, Keith. Uh, yeah, I mean that was the main verse that that uh, people kept quoting to me about the whole soul scripture thing is, well, what else do we have that's God breathed besides Scripture, and you know, I remember um, according to according that, to Genesis ourselves. Well, <laughs> what I what I went I went to John chapter twenty. I said, "Well, Jesus breathed on the apostles and said, receive the Holy Spirit.' Who's ever sins you forgive are forgiven. Who's ever sins you retain are retained." So I guess there's God breathed right there. You know, <laughs> he, he. But the thing is, it's like I would have a lot more respect for Protestants in this issue if they would just be honest about it and say, "Look." We recognize that the that you can't teach the position of sola scriptura from the scriptures, but we believe it anyway. We just do. We just believe it anyway. And so it's kind of like when someone says, you know, all truth is relative. And you go, well, even that statement you just made, if they say, well, all truth is relative except for that statement I just made. I feel like if a Protestant would say, here's the deal. I don't believe that the scripture teaches that sola scriptura is a thing, but I believe it anyway. And I know that might sound weird, but I just do. Then I'd say, okay, well, at least you're admitting it, you know. 
Yeah, but but I respect him anyway because I know how hard this was for me. It was really – I mean we're talking years of wrestling with this before I was willing to give up. So, you know, it's funny because, you know, when you get it to the other side, you're like, I was such an idiot. And everybody who thinks like I used to think is a – is an idiot. So I'm madder at them because I used to think like that, <laughs> you know? Uh, so that's weird. Cause for, I didn't struggle with it like that. Well, that's cause you're, you're, you're more open to the move of the spirit than I am. Keith. You know, I'm, an <laughs> obstinate, I'm an obstinate man. Uh, but you know, I just, I, I know how hard it was for me. And, 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 you know, for some people it's, you know, everybody's got like a different hill that they, you know, as they're coming towards the church, that's just the hardest one to climb. And this is a, a major, a major one for me. So whenever I run into somebody and that's, they're just stuck, I'm like, I'm just going to take a deep breath and just try and be disarming instead of hostile. You know, the, the, the things that for me, like the Mary thing was like actually kind of easy for me. And that's the one that everybody freaks out about. So I'm like a lot less like sympathetic to people's like, you know, not getting, <laughs> you know, not getting the Mary stuff. But yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Like if you just want to hang on to it because it's all you've ever known in some level, it's like having the ground drop out beneath you when you figure this out. And so you have to cling to it. Um, like I say, for me, it was years. It was years to come around to, to, to put two and two together, even though all the evidence was in front of me. Wow. I think I felt like I could see, you know, and I think it's maybe because I had such a diverse experience of Protestantism. You know, I mean, I grew up in the Methodist church, but even when I was growing up, I went to other churches and I went to fundamentalist church. I went to Baptist churches. I went to Pentecostal churches, you know, then I went to Bible only churches and then, I, you know, Bible like Calvary Chapel. And then and then I had a lot of friends who were Calvinists and Reformed. So I felt I feel like because I was exposed to so many different types of theology, all with people who were like just, well, the Bible says this and that's why I believe it. There was always something about that to me that just seemed you know, stinky, because mm -hmm. I was like, well, we all can't be right, and we all have the same Bible, so there's got to be something. Like, to me, when, when, when Catholicism came along, that was when I went, that's the thing I've been looking for when it comes to authority and the whole issue of the Scripture, because I wanted to be faithful to the Bible, but it was hard for me to see Christians disagreeing about things when it came to what the Bible said, and I hated, hated having arguments about, you know, this verse versus that verse. It just, that just to me yeah. felt oh, so like, this road. can't be right. This can't be what Jesus dead had in road. Mind. Yeah. It's like, if you're walking down the, the detergent aisle and every single one of them says they're toughest on stains, I'm like, but how do I know? I don't know. I don't know which one really is toughest on stains. One of you is more tougher. You know, that that to me, it's interesting to me. I, I was in dialogue with somebody one time who was kind of leaving the faith. At the same time, I was kind of becoming Catholic. And it was incredible how similar, how kind of parallel our journeys were up to the point where we kind of broke away. Because both of us were wrestling with, with how to understand Scripture and why there were so many different ways of interpreting things and so many different uh, kind of conclusions from the same book. My solution was like, wait a minute, this thing over here has for the last 2000 years claimed to be the arbiter of these things. Like this, this thing holds the tradition. It's passed on through the apostles into the bishops and the church has the magisterium. And this is, this is, this makes sense to me as an external source for interpreting the Bible and, and living our faith. But this guy I was talking to, 
he kind of threw his hands in the air and said, well, no, nobody knows. Like, yeah. it, you know, there's no way that we could possibly look at the scriptures yeah. and come to a conclusion. So he left the faith. But up to yeah. that point, up to the very, very end, our, our, our journeys were very, very similar, but the conclusions were, you know, polar opposite. Yeah. And, and this is, I, I really shouldn't, you know, Doug Beaumont's the person to read about this, uh, you know, commenting on these, all these deconversion stories that are happening in like evangelicalism these days. Um, people kind of come in public and saying, sorry guys, I know I've led worship at Hill songs for however many years or Josh, uh, Joshua Harris, uh, who the guy who wrote, I kissed dating goodbye, you know, had his deconversion a couple of years ago. The, yeah. the dude, dude from Hawk Nelson, who uh, they were post my time, and I wasn't into their kind of jams anyway. <laughs> but, but I understand where they were coming from and what he was saying. And how many of them are like, I just started reading Genesis. I'm like, you know, knowing the science we know, this can't be how it happened. I'm like, dude, it's <laughs> there's another way to read this. Um, or they, or they have one friend who's in, you know, a, a relationship that they just can't get their mind around. Um, and so Christianity as a whole must be untrue. And, 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 and that's as, that's as simple as it, simple as it is because they don't have this whole, well, like, like St. Irenaeus is saying in against heresies, they've got a book, right? Whereas what St. Irenaeus says is you want to know what the truth is. The apostles deposit it in the church like the rich man deposits his money in a bank. You can go get it. It's not like they wrote it down on a few pieces of paper and this is what we got. Um, deal with it. But even with that, you know, it, you, you have to understand that like the apostles weren't acting like Sola Scriptura was going to be the norm when they left anyway. No, nobody, nobody thought that. Nobody thought that. Nobody acted like that. If if Peter thought that Sola Scriptura was going to be the rule of faith after he died, why do we only have like two short letters from him? And why didn't Jesus say that? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I st- that's kind of where I stake my claim is like if if this if the written word was the only way that we were going to know anything about what Christianity was, then why didn't Jesus say anything like that? Or he never write tells him to write a thing down. <laughs> yeah, he only writes one thing in the Bible, and it's in the dirt when they're getting ready to throw rocks at that lady. And we yeah. It's like literally the only time he writes anything. <laughs> yeah, the one time he wrote something, we don't even know what it said, right? <laughs> because you know why? Because he is the Word of God. And this is something that Dave Verbum actually uh, brings forth strongly, and it's in 100 documents before and since, is that Christianity, at least Catholicism, is not a religion of the book. It's a religion of the Word. Amen. Amen. That's the difference. That's the difference. All right, guys. I, I want to begin to bring this to a close, and I want to start to kind of think of how we would speak to somebody who's who's listening to this discussion, who is where we were. I mean, this for me is a really hard thing to do because I I've not been Catholic for a long, long time, but it, it, I still find it very hard to put myself back into those shoes. Like you know, we Matt, you were very empathetic with this idea of understanding where we've come from and I'm, I'm empathetic <laughs> with a lot of bad ideas actually <laughs> it's it's important to underscore <laughs> i mean but it's hard it's hard for me to to think back to like how did i ever read john six in a different context and how did it make any sense at all not just reading it literally like how did i twist myself around there it, it makes no sense but i want to try i want to try and 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 think about talking to those people who might be listening to this program who are there and who are wrestling with these these same kind of ideas that we wrestled with and, and might be coming to similar conclusions or kind of on the fence. And I want to do it in this context. I want to read from John 17 for a minute here because this to me is just 
it's crazy, right? I don't know how we can remain thinking that sola scriptura is the rule of faith when it's so divisive. It's you know it splits people apart. There's just no plain sense way of interpreting things. How can we ever aspire to what Jesus prays for in this verse? I want to read here, and and do sola scriptura. You know, I want to think about this. So here's what Jesus says. This is this is like the last recorded prayer, right, of Jesus on earth before he leaves us, right? And he says this. He, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, right? The apostles, the disciples, that all of them may be one father. He's, he's praying to God here, you know, God the father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a crazy thing in there, and I read from the NIV, I think, translation to be ecumenical, (laughs) the Bible I would have used back then. But this is crazy to me, right? That, that Jesus is praying that the future church, he's praying for us, right? The future church may be one as the Father, you know, as God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. Like that's the closest unity you can ever imagine, right? But then, so that the world will know who Jesus is, that we may point to him right? So that the world will know that, you know, you sent me and I've loved them even as I have loved you. How? (laughs) How is the divided, ununited church ever going to kind of mirror that love? And how is the world ever going to know to fulfill the prayer Jesus prayed, how much God loves us if we can't be united like that? Like, where do we even go? (laughs) I mean, my my thoughts on that are pretty Pretty short and simple, and that is, uh, wh- where is? Let's take a take it out away from a religious question and look at any other question. Where does individualism get us? Where does my way or the highway get us? I mean, just look at the look at the division in our culture on everything, and 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 where where does it put us? It puts us suspicious of our fellow man. It puts us perceiving wrongs where wrongs are not. It puts us dismissing actual pain in other people. It, 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 it tears us apart from one another. Then we pick up a Bible and we see what we want to see. Where's the external authority that says, no, this is what you need to hear right now, which is what the church does with the, with the lectionary, you know, it says, you know what, this is what you need to hear right now. Um, not, it is not what your pastor feels like preaching on today. And that to me was, was a freeing thing. And I think the church reminds us that it's not just about us. It's about, you know, that, you know, little old lady who's there for daily mass, whose name you don't even know too. It's about everybody. It's about everybody. And the scriptures are not my personal manual to justify everything that I already think and feel. They're about something a whole lot bigger than me. And I need to have the humility to subject subject myself to that and to participate joyfully in that. And I think that people don't realize that when you get into the church and submit to this, it's not like you are, you know, chaining yourself to a wall. It's not like you are shutting off your brain. It, it's like this huge sense of freedom and joy um, that I wish I could figure out a way to communicate to people. 
<laughs> you know, when people ask me, you know, that found out I was becoming Catholic, they're like, you're so smart. Like, you used to be such an independent thinker. Why would you, you know, shut off your brain and become like this, you know, ro- robot for the post, stormtrooper for the Pope or whatever? And they don't understand that it's freedom to to live in that unity and authority. You know what? Almost every this is something that I've been trying to articulate since I became Catholic, Matt. And almost almost every convert I speak to on this program says something so similar to that. I can think back to like episode number one or two or something of this podcast when I was trying to articulate that feeling, and I haven't ever since. But it's it's a freedom, right? It's a freedom from not having to. To, to be your own pope and judge. I don't know Greek. <laughs> I can't go back and eisegete. Yeah. <laughs> but the church is like the TARDIS. It's like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. It looks like this little phone booth. But you go inside and it's like this huge sprawling thing that's a dimension to infinite worlds. <laughs> and there's that vast freedom in, you know, just hopping into a stream that is the tradition that has this authority that stretches back to the it apostles, alive. back to crisis. It's right? alive. It's yeah. <laughs> it's. I think I think about it in terms of of when you you know you ask the question like how do you articulate this to someone in light of what Christ said, and I think about how Jesus is always talking about the kingdom, and that that really this is all about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to you know and said the kingdom of heaven is among you. He's talking about this. And if you think about a kingdom, what you're what you're what you're really looking at without Catholicism, without the teaching magisterium of the church, is you're looking at a kingdom without a king. You know, in essence, you can say, "Well, Jesus is my king," but you have a king then that doesn't really rule you directly. But what you, when you realize the way that Jesus set us set it up, you go, "That's exactly what we have." Because we have a kingdom, we have a king, and we have this magisterium that teaches us how to be good subjects of the king. And there's where your protection is, is, is together. And we're all supposed to be united. You know, we don't have our own little kingdoms that we set up where we, we all say Jesus is our king, but really we run our own little ship. We recognize that in order to be biblical Christians— we have to recognize the way that Jesus set up his church. And it's as a kingdom with the steward. And that steward is Peter and Peter's successors. And that steward bears the authority of the keys of the kingdom that bind and loose. And those are given to us for our benefit, for our protection, and for our joy so that we don't have to figure it all out. But what happens is we forget about this whole idea of kingdom and we create our own little um, our islands where we're the boss. We decide. It's all about us. We're individualistic and we are our own authority. And I just point people back to Christ and say, look, is this the way that you think Jesus set this up? Was for us all to be divided and arguing with each other using the same book as authoritative. I mean, how how ridiculous is that? I think the devil just looks at that and laughs and goes, "Man, this is awesome." You know, look at look at what I've got these Christians doing. They're using they're using the book against each other. And they're going around in circles. And I think we have to remember what it means to be part of the kingdom. <laughs> Very well said. Guys, I want to give both of you a chance to let listeners know where to go to find out more 
about you guys. Uh, Matt, what do you want to tell them? I just Google me. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a few different places. chnetwork.org is the, the home base for the Coming Home Network. Over a thousand uh, conversion stories at this point, including both of yours. Yeah, so, baby. So both of yours are up there, and uh, we've got uh, all kinds of great stuff. And also, actually, a pastoral care and support for anybody who's actively on the journey. We have like one-on-one, like walk you through stuff kind of people going on, uh, and especially for people who work in ministry. And then if you get up early enough, you can listen to the Sunrise Morning Show on EWTN starting at 6 a.m. Eastern every weekday. (laughs) Caught the Uh, end of it the other day. (laughs) Hey, there you go. That's because you didn't get up early enough. Keith, where can they go to find out more about you if they don't know who you are to begin with? So, um, so my ministry is called Down to Earth, and I have a website. It's down the number two earthministry.org. So down to earthministry.org, and then also um, my YouTube channel is just Keith Nestor. If you just cite, uh, cite, search that for a channel search, you'll find my videos there. And I do um, I'm doing all kinds of stuff on YouTube. So those are the two places that are the best. Mm-hmm. And you got a podcast and a fantastic book yes. too. Yes. Yes, I have a podcast. It's called Catholic Feedback, and I, I drop that every Tuesday on YouTube and on all the places where podcasts are dropped. So um, I encourage people to check that out. And then, of course, you can find my book, The the Conference Guide to Roman Catholicism, Your First Year at the Church. It's on my website. It's also on Amazon.com. Sounds fantastic. Guys, this has been an, a, <laughs> a real treat. I mean, it's a weird thing to uh, to spend an, an almost two hours talking about things we used to think about. But I mean, it's one of those things like, it's often described, I think, and you guys have both heard this, uh, using the, the pearl of great price parable of Jesus, right? You find this thing, you sell it all to buy this field. And that's so often what it feels like to become Catholic, right? We used to live in this, in this worldview, this sola scriptura worldview. You know, you become Catholic, you have this giant worldview shift, and suddenly, oh my goodness, you know, what was I doing before? Everyone, <laughs> everyone, come by this thing. So, thanks so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, God bless both of you. God bless the awesome work that both of you are doing for the kingdom. Thank you for being here, and uh, take care, guys. Hey, thanks, thanks for the for invitation. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, guys, for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. Did you love that discussion? I hope you did. I hope that it caused you to think deeper, to encounter some new ideas, and to challenge, perhaps, what you think about these topics. It's certainly important to all of us, and you hear the passion with which we speak about it. It really impacted all three of our journeys into the Catholic Church. Hopefully, you got a sense of that here today. Check out Keith Nestor's website, keithnestor.com. He's on YouTube as well. He's on Facebook. He's on Twitter. He has a fantastic new book and a great podcast too. And look up Matt as well and listen to Matt every morning on the Sunrise Morning Show on EWTN. Both great guys and I appreciate all their time. It was a great interview. I really enjoyed having that. Hopefully you enjoyed it too thecordialcatholic.com for our website. Please email me, cordialcatholic at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of that show. I'd love your feedback. 
at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, the Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And please do subscribe, follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you find it. Those subscriptions, those follows, those ratings and reviews help push this podcast out to new people. And that's the whole mission of this thing. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic or PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic to help this thing keep going. Guys, please pray for me. I'm praying for you and I'll see you again next week. Thanks, guys, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcafe. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.